0: It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here with your questions, his answers, and more amazing ways to scare dogs and crows. It's coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love.
1: From people you trust.
0: This This is is TWIT. Audio Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com android. Video Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 310, recorded July 19, 2011. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 122. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. Try one in your business by visiting astaro.com or call 877, the number 4, Astaro. And by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit netflix.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your, yes, your, yes, your security and privacy online. And what better person to do it than this cat right here, Mr. Steve Gibson. Of GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, creator of Spinrite, world's finest hard drive maintenance recovery utility, creator of many free utilities for us all in uh, the realm of... <laughs> hey, Steve. How are you?
1: <laughs> Hi, Mom. Hey. hey, Isaac? How's it going? <laughs> and we also talk about other people's security, or lack of, yeah. uh, as, as it bears on us and our internet experiences. And uh, this week, we've got a Q&A, our hundred and secondies... Secondy
0: second. Secondy second.
1: (laughs) Sounding like Bilbo Baggins here. My hundred and twenty second. My hundred and seventy second. Actually, I'm excited
0: because um, this is our last Security Now. It should all go well (laughs) from the Twit Cottage. Next week, we will be doing this show, I think, I hope. Well, I think we have to because in I your think new we're in digital actually, studio. Yeah, in the new studio down the road in the yeah. Twit Brick House. I think we have to because I think that Sunday, and you're coming up, by the way, thank you so much. Yeah, that'll be a blast. The grand opening of the Brick House is this Sunday, July 24th. We're going to do a special live Twit with four of the earliest Twit cast members, uh, all four of whom appeared on the original screensavers. And I think when you get in the studio, you'll see why I wanted to that crew because it really feels and looks like the screensavers uh steve gibson john c Dvorak, kevin rose and patrick norton will be in studio with us at the new uh twit brick house uh this sunday and then the following wednesday we will uh, do security now as we usually do what is unknown is whether we'll be in my office because you know we built a duplicate of this studio but i don't know if it'll be ready
1: yet if not we'll be at the round table or somewhere <laughs> Or any of the new multiple venues you have in this in this oh, amazing new oh, creation. It's so yours. gorgeous! You, I just can't wait till you see it. No on-screen uh, webcam
0: or pictures do it justice. Wait till you see it live on video. You'll have we ever
1: talked lid. about or recently talked about the URL so that our non-live listeners could tune in and just see the webcam of the studio as it's being built? No. Let me give it to you because uh, I mean it's it's not super high quality. It's a drop cam. But it's better than nothing, which is what a lot of people have right now,
0: probably. Right, and it's live, which is kind yes. of fun. So, you, you know, I think right now, let me just check, but I think right now there are people uh, measuring for stuff. <laughs> if you go to bit.ly, it's a the shortened URL, bit.ly, bit.ly slash twit drop, you could see what's going on over there. And it, it looks like there's... I, oh! Oh, the red, uh, a few of the final uh, touches are coming. These are the, these red kind of arches go on the metal arches. We, these aluminum arches that we've been waiting for those. Uh, I think there's a logo that's going in my office. I could see, you know, they've covered the, uh, this is the switcher here. They've covered that up to protect it. Last night, John uh, and Burke and Colin were all at the studio well past midnight setting up audio. And apparently John's got it all done, which is fantastic. We we use you know that IP based audio s- solution from Telos the Axia, which is spectacular, but it does require a considerable amount of uh, setup. You know you have to once you program everything in though it uh, it's just a button push to change configuration. What are those
1: wacky things that you've got the arches terminating into? Looks like sort of a some little droid. Isn't that of. funny looking? You That's know what they wonderful. really
0: are is rubber made tubs painted copper, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> How fun! And uh, and they've made some lids for him. The idea was to kind of some sort of termination point in there. Yeah, yeah. Roger, our set designer, Roger Ambrose, just uh, is an artist. He really is an artist. And uh,
1: and what's that? What's covered up there? in, in the that's Ford the now? that's
0: the switcher. This is where the oh the, my
1: god! That's like some big like. Studio desk it, kind of You thing.
0: know, you'll feel like you're at the, sh- at the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh-huh. You know, you're Mr. Sulu sitting here. Uh, Everything but... is there. The audio mixer, the light mixer, the TriCaster mixer for video, all of the video connections. By the way, we'll be using video, not Skype, although we'll have that capability as well. The screenshot station, too. One person will be sitting there, and that rotates. It's covered up, obviously, but that rotates to point to whatever set we're using. So you can be facing... <laughs> How, how do you get all the cables into it? Do they come in down from above? Well, this is the most amazing thing. This building, it's as if this building were designed for what we're doing. You know, a lot of studios have, a lot of electro- electronic installations in general have raised floors. You know, you'll, you know the old IBM PC uh, uh, mainframes, they'd have a raised floor and all the wiring oh. would be under the floor. Yep. Well, this place has essentially a six-foot raised floor. It's our basement. And, no, and and you
1: can drill holes through it.
0: We drilled holes all over this oh, floor. Oh my every god! Every desk, every set, everything has a hole drilled through the floor going down. And so all of the noisy, hot electronics for the mixer, the lighting board, the audio, the the video, the Skype, even the Skypeosaurus, Skyposaurus, everything are underneath the floor here. How cool! It makes it so easy, and it's so and it's much.
1: Con- it's concrete flooring.
0: No, it's just a wood floor.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: you'll see wow. when you. I'll give you the 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 grand tour, of course. In fact, wow. when we get over there, we'll do we'll we'll have a live camera. We'll we'll go all over the place to show yeah. everybody what we've done. But um, having that in the basement is huge. It makes it so pleasant and quiet upstairs in the studio area, because all the noisy hot stuff is downstairs. We're building an enclosure for it and an air conditioning system as well, so it won't you know, overheat down there. Although it's pretty cool. It's a it's a basement. Wow. How
1: neat. Well, so bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash twit drop. Yep, that's what you're seeing right there. allow our listeners to take a look at what's going on at the studio. Yeah. For those who, for those who haven't been watching live. Live and in person. And, um, nice. And it's, uh, you know, we've also done,
0: uh, John uh, has been doing this whole time for six months now, a time lapse. So there will be a massive... <laughs> Probably a five-hour movie, the making of the Twitch With everything, studios. like yeah.
1: oh, oh there's a big red beam moving. Yeah, right now. so that's
0: going to go on these arches. Those are going <laughs> to go on the arches. To uh, the arches are very aluminum-looking. These are actually lighting, uh, lighting uh, trusses. Yep. And so to make them look a little more like the Golden Gate Bridge, kind of this is all international orange. Kind of to, to give it, make it more structural and less aluminum-y, We're putting these uh, facades on top of them. Very and it cool. really it, it it you just wait till you see it. It's <laughs> it's kind of hard to describe how beautiful this is. But the time lapse will really do a great job because you'll see it go from you know, just a boring kind of office
1: with drywall to this. Yeah, you're gonna want to do like a formal Introduction to the studios that you can post on like statically post absolutely we have we have uh well yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) we have lots of plans (laughs) for making up how
0: we did it all that stuff because i you know you know me i don't like to keep anything a secret i want everybody to know how you do it in case they want to do it too first thing get a really big
1: bank account (laughs) and not be in any big hurry and then yeah
0: not have a deadline
1: yeah, in fact, I, I just, I corresponded with Eileen this morning saying, okay, uh, is this really happening on, on on Sunday? Because, you know, I built things once and I know that, you know, schedules are subject to change. She it says, has nope, to. Yeah. It has to. We printed stickers <laughs> we, with the date on them. It has to. Cool.
0: I said this a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, we've printed stickers with the date on them. This is going to be humiliating if we don't actually move on that day. And and Lisa said, no, no, we're going to move on that day. And uh, you know what? I think, I think we are. I don't know who this is here. That, that, that's just, he's standing where the ham stage. You know, we're going to have a full AM radio station, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of went overboard stop me somebody should handcuff me before i spend again all right steve we've got to do a show so let's let's, uh, let's get show. security now uh, underway hey you know i do want to mention one thing that's going to be very cool and you'll see in the tour of uh, the new facility um all of our security is astaro we have four astaro utms astaro gateways we have nice. two astaro access points i am so thrilled and you could talk to russell tammany our it guy he is so thrilled by what these Astaros do. It is not only will we, you should. I should show you the log it sends out every day of everything that's happened on the network. It does bandwidth shaping, it does QoS. Uh, because we have multiple uh, internet sources, it bonds and distributes. We've got seven or eight VLANs. I mean, this thing is amazing. If you are in an enterprise where you need security, top of the line, both open source and commercial. Uh, security. This is the box for you, the Astaro Security Gateway. Uh, just incredible, uh, Linux-based, and then on top of it, it's got f- it's got the best, of course. I mean, this is a given. You know, uh, stateful packet inspection firewall, but it also has email encryption and signing transparently using OpenPGP or S/MIME. It has. I mean, we're going to have all our email will be signed from now on automatically by the uh, the gateway. Um, it has, f- I think, three different filters. It's got a filter for, you know, virus filters for email, virus filters for the web. I mean, just, I could go on and on. This thing is just rock solid. You just feel, I feel like we're so safe in here. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O, if you want to know more. I know typically one wouldn't announce one's security system, but I'm so confident. I just, I can't help it. dot com. Is the website. If you're in a business and you want a demo of the Astaro Security Gateway in your office, it's no cost, no obligation. Just call 877 the number four ASTARO. And by the way, do it yourself. Astaro's always done this and it's so great. They offer it for free for non commercial use. You even get the Astaro Up To Date, which is automatic updates of all the stuff free for non commercial use. Find out more at slash security now. They have a VMware appliance. There's lots of ways to do this on your uh, beige box. Nothing but the best, and I just want to thank them profusely uh, for giving us state-of-the-art uh, network—not just network security, uh, but uh, but network management through Astaro. I really—I'm just—we'll show you the rack when you get there. It's so cool. ASTARO.com dot com or call eight seven seven the number four Astaro. All right, Steve. I guess as always, we need to start with security updates.
1: Yes, we do. We're going to this is a little more of an old-style Q&A in as much as we don't have a ton of news this week, but I've I've backloaded us with lots of questions. We've got a full 12 uh, useful and interesting questions. I had time to go through and they some of the earlier ones that I chose I found better ones for them so I think we've got a really great podcast with a little bit of news uh and a bunch of miscellaneous stuff but mostly a Q&A that's actually Q&A this week well I love it um, the the real only significant worth mentioning update I ran across wasn't even PC Um, It was for iOS, and I'm sure you've uh, already tuned into this since this was on Friday of last week, that um, Apple released version 4.3.4 of the iOS for all of their iOS-based devices um, on the AT&T platform. The Verizon CDMA customers get updated to 4.2.9. Users will. I was want
0: afraid of this kind of forking. That's really too bad.
1: Eh, I know. Users will want to update though, because this, this fixes a a three critical problems um, that involve uh, well or include a PDF rendering flaw, which was um, announced by a hacker Comex as a slick means of jailbreaking iOS devices. Well, it's one thing if a user. Deliberately loaded a PDF, which is what this is. This is a PDF rendering flaw. Now, this is not something we can blame on Adobe for, for a change, because this is Apple's own PDF code. Um, so the moment that ComEx introduced this concept of jailbreaking via PDF, which was very convenient for users who wanted to jailbreak their iOS devices. Of course, that's not something that Apple wants people to do. Um, Apple announced that they would quickly be addressing this, so they have. the The risk is, though, that people who don't update could could have this PDF flaw leveraged against them just by visiting a website or viewing a document which they don't think is malicious. They could have their device taken over. So everyone wants to update. Anyone who's using um, iOS devices. In fact, I tried to do that before the podcast, but it told me it was going to take 30 minutes. We only had 15 minutes to go before you and I got online, so I scrubbed it after I saw that. And I'll I'll do my updates uh, after we're through recording. I have this, this bad podcast. habit of as soon as I see an update,
0: even if I'm beginning a show. <laughs> so, but I didn't.
1: Yeah, and that can bite us when it's a 600 yeah. meg, you know, Mac OS update. Takes a while. Update. We yeah. got Lion is
0: supposedly coming out tomorrow or the next day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say one thing that. Microsoft seems to have done right, maybe just because they've had much more time to do it. Is their their updates are smaller in size? My, my, uh, Apple seems to just replace the whole OS every time they they do a major update. Well, so, actually,
0: this is something supposedly they will fix in iOS 5. Ah, yeah, that they're not they're going to have uh, uh, delta updates as opposed to. In fact, they do give you the full firmware each time.
1: Right. Yeah. Um. So the only thing I had, and there, I don't really have any information about it, but I got a bunch of people saying, "Oh, Steve, are you going to talk about the fact that LulzSec, our Lulz security folks, hacked the Sun newspaper uh, in the UK and put up their own content on the site, which was embarrassing for the paper?" And so it's like, "Okay, well, I'll mention that." But <laughs> even more <laughs> <Not> embarrassing, <really. laughs> frankly, for the uh, British television newscasters
0: who said. Well, it looks like the sun's been redirected to we're in it for the
1: Louise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hmm. Okay. Um, and I did tweet something earlier uh, in the week that I, that a lot of people uh, retweeted because they thought it was interesting. And this was a um, a it was picked up by Read Write Web, um, which w- had a a a, a snapshot. Of a Forrester research survey uh, that showed that Windows XP still powers 60% of corporate desktops, and it also showed Apple making a small gain. I have the link to that uh, well, here. In the it could have been
0: worse. It could have been Windows 98.
1: <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Um, and I'll, so I'll just read a little bit from this. It says according to a new report from Forrester. When I tried to go there, but they want some thousands of dollars for it. So I thought, well, okay, I'll just I'll just cite what read write web had That's rather crazy. than trying to talk Forrester out of a copy. According to a new report from Forrester, Windows seven is now in use on twenty percent, okay, twenty percent only of corporate desktops as of march twenty eleven windows xp still holds on to fifty nine point nine rounded to sixty percent of the enterprise desktop world down from sixty seven point five a year ago so a year ago it was at sixty seven point five and it's only dropped to sixty percent over the course of the last year so only they only lost seven and a (coughs) half percent apple Excuse me. Now has an 11% share of the corporate desktop, up from 9.1 a year ago, and Linux still struggling for much is only at 1.4%, and it was at 1.3 a year ago. So Linux is really not seeing much traction well, on. It's the growing. Desktop. It's growing. It it's in the right. It's going that in that direction. <laughs> the right direction. Uh, meanwhile, IE Internet Explorer has declined slightly, as we've talked about in several opportunities uh, recently, while Chrome and Safari are both on the rise. Of course, Safari being brought along by the Mac that is also on the rise. Um, it said the pace of Windows 7 adoption is accelerating, according to the report. Windows 7 dominates new deployments, with XP and Vista finally starting to disappear. Forrester says Vista adoption peaked in November of '09 at 14%. And has declined ever since so so we 're seeing that and this is sort of what we would expect, which is new systems which are probably reluctantly being purchased just because they 're not free, are coming with seven built in, but corporations are not in any rush at all to just upgrade the OS when they don 't have to, so they 're staying with XP and as XP is phased out they're being replaced with with Windows 7 and Vista sort of never really got a foothold it wasn't there long enough for it to replace the XP systems and 7 came along and so all new systems being deployed are going to be Windows 7 based rather than Vista so that's sort of the, the, the arc of that and the, this link does have an interesting table that shows how all this breaks down over time. So um, I just wanted to, I caught that and thought that was that was interesting from, you know, we've talked about legacy machines and security and so forth. Um, there's a really interesting, and Leo, you should go to this URL while we're talking, collusion.toolness.org. Okay. C-O-L-L-U-S-I-O-N dot, toolness, T-O-O-L-N-E-S-S dot org Um, And this is a, 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 and I also tweeted about this, so people could also check my recent tweet stream. Um, And by the way, I am on Google Plus as just Steve Gibson. You can search for Steve Gibson and find my picture there. I found you. I found you. And uh, and I'll probably what what I'll be doing from now on is is duplicating my tweets or my my postings over there. For you might find that, that the thing Twitter.
0: about Google Plus is it ends up being all about conversations, interesting conversations. Right. And uh, uh,
1: while you can do that on on Twitter, it's a little more difficult to follow. Yes. Um, so, okay. So collusion is actually a a Firefox add-on, which I have not yet had a chance to take a look at we, should, we I I should explain a little bit that I was a little caught off guard by switching from uh the podcast from Wednesday to Tuesday we we're recording this a day earlier and so I had budgeted some time that that I will use next week to to have a chance to play with with collusion what this does it sort of takes us the next step forward from ghostry to actually tie together sites that are colluding in tracking us. And so this collusion.toolness.org is sort of, just sort of gives you a quick overview example. It, it takes you through several sites and, and builds their, this collusion graph that shows how different tracking which is common to those sites links you together as you move from site to site. It's very interesting um, and and sort of interactive. It builds a cool node graph on the fly as as you move through, I think it's four or five different sites, and then you are able to hover your mouse over the nodes, and it pops up information about them. You can drag them around, actually, to sort of reorganize this node graph, which is sort of... What's interesting,
0: though, is as you go from site to site, it shows the interrelationship between the sites, Yes. So it's more than just what this site tells you and what that site tells you, which is what Ghostery tells you. It shows how sites, successive visits to sites, build up a picture.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, so again, I have not had a chance to look at the collusion wow. add-on, but I, I'm absolutely. I mean, I, holy cow! Ghostery <laughs> is really cool, and this thing. Uh, running on Firefox, that d- d- will link all this together. I can't wait to take a look at it and see what it looks like.
0: Yeah, this is this is a really nice visualization. Yes. of of, of this information. So, and, and even if you don't yeah. want to install it in Firefox, if you go to that collusion website, uh, he he kind of gives you a demo, which we're running running through right now of how visiting sites will build up this this uh, amazing graph of information. Yeah. About you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, many people have tweeted me about Mozilla's new identity effort called Browser ID. Um, I wanted to just acknowledge that I'm aware of it and I've seen it. Um, I'm going to give it a full analysis because I, I dipped in quickly thinking maybe I could take a quick look at it. It's like, whoa, okay, this is some serious crypto technology that I want to understand and share with our users. but i'm encouraged because of course we did a whole episode on the issue of identity on the internet we recognize the importance of it now and certainly in the future and mozilla has an approach which they have put together it's an outgrowth of a project that they have worked on which is it's still in its infancy But they use your email address as as you proving ownership of, your, of an email address with an email loop in order to to, to solve the authentication problem so I, I haven't looked in detail at it but I imagine it's gonna be worth the whole podcast where we pull this thing apart in detail and look at how it works uh, which we will do um, I also noted that TrueCrypt who, that is uh, you know, our favorite whole drive encryption system uh, is looking for money. Uh, they're asking for donations. They want to raise one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and so far they have ten thousand. So I just wanted to point that to our listeners, uh, users of TrueCrypt who want to support the the free and open source effort. Uh, I would encourage people to go over and maybe give them a few bucks. If, it should be a no so. brainer. Everybody uses it. It's
0: yes, free. exactly.
1: Yes, and uh, and a you know spectacularly secure and robust solution. And then finally, um, there's an interesting site called Browserscope.org, so it's just as it sounds, browser scope, as in oscilloscope, but this is a Browserscope.org, um, that shows and tracks and allows users to run a series of tests against their own browser of choice to see how it does. It takes about four minutes to run the test. You will want to enable JavaScript or you might as well just not bother because it's, it's a heavily scripting test but it performs a wide spectrum of security related and function related tests on whatever browser you, you visit it with and also shows what all of the users of browserscope.org collectively and anonymously have found out about their browsers and, and sort of builds a, a you know these browsers do this those browsers do that so just a, another cool way of looking at where your browser ranks and rates uh, in, in terms of functionality and security rel- and cookie handling and so forth relative to uh, the cross-section of all browsers that are currently in use.
0: I'm sorry, I'm just looking at mine. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it's very cool. Community, Uh, Very interesting.
1: So I wanted to recommend that. And uh, I have a short note from a happy Spinrite user, David Ward, uh, whose company is Wellmax Computer. He wrote and said, I own a small IT consulting business, Wellmax Computer. I've been using Spinrite for almost 20 years. So, wow. Wow. Yeah. He says a customer brought an XP machine in that was freezing. I knew that he was having problems with his hard drive. He wanted a new drive, but not just to repair the old one. I had a drive cloning utility, shall remain nameless, for whatever <laughs> reason. And when setting up You'll to see. clone <laughs> and when setting up to clone one drive to the other, I was dismayed to see that it was projected to take 22 hours to finish the cloning process. This was a 500 gig drive. Well, after 24 hours, it had barely budged, maybe done 8%. My gut told me, I think the source drive is having problems. Mm-hmm. So I ran SpinRite at level 4. 2 days later, SpinRite had finished. I started the cloning process again, and this time was done in 22 minutes instead of 22 hours to get 8% of the way done. I got to thinking, why don't these cloning software manufacturers include SpinRite as part of their software? Of course, there would be a royalty to you for each copy sold. This just seems like a match made in heaven. That's a good point, David Ward. Well, and I'll just say I really avoid any sort of that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I have a very simple business model. Um, you know, I, I I get people sometimes who want to license spin writer bundle it with things, and. I, you know, then, then we're doing tech, I, we, we would still want to do tech support, but then they'd, you know, they'd say, oh, no, we'll do tech support, except they can't do tech support because they don't know the product that well. Customers would end up being annoyed. Uh, it just, I, I like things, to, I like to keep things simple. So uh, I wanted to share David's experience and let anyone uh, know that if they have, uh, like, a problem cloning a drive, to remember Spinrite because it can be useful and helpful there as well. We have some questions for you, Mr. G. Are you ready to give us answers? We've got a bunch.
0: Yes, quickly, really good ones. Very, and I'll do this very quickly. Mention for those of you. I mean, what have you been? I know you got a Netflix subscription for your iPad. Yes, I do. Have you been watching movies?
1: No. Why not? Well, I just because <laughs> I don't have any time. I'm busy. Yes, don't but start. But I have cause... it, and, and when there's something that I need to watch now, I can. Well, you know, I'm
0: it's... just telling you. For instance, they now have all. Star Trek TV shows from the original series on through uh, beautiful high def versions of the original series. If you haven't seen that, great to browse through. Mad Men is on there. Lots of TV shows. If you now there there's a Netflix disc thing, but I just I almost want to just say at 7.99 a month, Netflix streaming just by itself. That's it. That's what you need. Now, if you've not tried it, you can try it free at Netflix.com/twit for 30 days just to get a sense of it. Tens of thousands of movies, TV shows, entertainment of all kinds. I watched something. I watched two things last night. I watched something almost every night. And here's the deal. I know maybe you're already a Netflix member, so you don't need this. But maybe your friends or family don't know about Netflix yet. Would you do me a favor? Do Steve a favor? Share this URL with them. Netflix.com slash twit. Tonight. They could be watching great movies and TV shows direct, downloaded onto their Roku, their PS3, their Xbox 360, their Nintendo Wii, their iPhone, their iPad, their iPod Touch, even some Android phones. Netflix.com slash twit. Oh, The Riches is on now. I loved that show.
1: See, this happens to me every time. I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm sorry. I shouldn't. I shouldn't look. <laughs> hey, you're a ham now, and you've just got your ham gear. So you saw
0: that, did you? Yeah, I be a little the, distracted. Uh, I think
1: I passed the technician uh, uh, test
0: uh, on Friday, and I want to thank everybody at the Mount Diablo Amateur Radio Club, many of whom are fans, by the way, Steve, uh, for for being so nice to me. And you know, it was just it really felt good. I haven't taken a test for anything in years, so I was a little nervous. And then now, as soon as I shall get my call letters, I don't know what they're going to be yet. It should happen in the next few days. But I have to admit, part of the reason I became a ham is for the gear. And I've already, you're right, I've already, I've already purchased my radio. I'm ready. The minute I can. I can't yet. But the minute I can, I'm going to pull this radio out of its, its cup holder and I'm going to
1: say hello. <laughs> Actually, I want to learn Morse code. You never became a ham. Never became a ham. I had to learn Morse code for the Boy Scouts because that was one of the, the merit badges that you, that you earned for something. I don't remember now. What? They may have been on communication. Remember, you know, hey, we had semaphore and Morse code and screaming really loud and, you know, various things. That's, that's – so I'm jealous because that's
0: the next thing. Although I'm looking forward to learning it, actually. I have a – this is where software really can come in handy. There's a Morse code trainer I've downloaded for Windows, yeah. and it's amazing. And I think I'll learn much more quickly than I would have learned if I were trying to piece it out by myself. So this is fun; it's a good little hobby. But enough of that. You ready for some Q and A? Because yes, you
1: don't have enough hobbies, Leo. You're just you're casting about for something to do. All I actually the time. don't really
0: have a hobby. This is my profession. Yeah. Fortunately, my hobby is my profession. I love technology, and so when I yep. go home and you know play with Ruby or or you know read tech news, I mean, not, never feels like work to me. It's all I do all the time. Even when I'm Building my tiny tower, I feel like that's a little bit of work. <laughs> before we uh, before we get too far down that road, let's uh, let's get some questions. Good idea, Mr. Steve Gibson. Q and A number one, two, two. Starting with Joey, a high school student listener in Alberta, Canada. He wants some career advice. Dear Steve, I just recently started listening to your podcast, and I have to start off by saying you are doing a great job. I've slowly been. <laughs> I've slowly been working my way through the extensive list of archive episodes. I've been learning a lot. Thank you. I'm a high school student with a passion for computers and math. And it sounds like This kid sounds like he might be a little mini Steve, actually. And, uh, and I want to become a computer security expert once I graduate because that's what I'm most interested in. However, with a constant evolution and improvement of computer security and crypto, I'm worried that by the time I get through high school and university... there'll be no more improvements to be made oh fear not (laughs) so my question to you is this do you think the computer security industry will be around long enough to sustain a lifelong career for someone my age or will it soon become obsolete how long will it be before every end user machine becomes secure enough so as not to require constant attention I'm guessing that'll be a long time but I want your opinion any advice is appreciated. I'm currently at that point in my life where I need to focus on a career path and decide which computer-related field I'll specialize in. Computer security is my first choice, but I'm sure, unsure how viable that career will be in 10, 20, or 30 years. By the way, I'm currently working toward my A+. This is now a high school kid, by the way. Yeah. What do he say? He's a, he's a, a junior?
1: I don't think he says, but, but he does say. In high school, say, but
0: in high school. Yeah. currently working towards my A plus certification, plan on getting a BS in computer science, focusing on information security. One last question: Would spinright work with my PlayStation Three, iPod Classic, or Shaw DVR system? All of them use hard drives, but are proprietary in nature. I plan on buying Spinrite in the future to show my support, but want to know if these machines are supported tested. Joey, Alberta, Canada.
1: Okay, so. First, uh, just so I don't forget, yes, Spinrite will work on all of those. People have fixed, we've heard many reports of PlayStations being fixed with Spinrite. Uh, we told some stories years ago about the classic iPods. There was, you may remember, Leo, there was one guy who was collecting them because all, he sort of became the guy that collected dead iPods, the original ones with hard drives in them. Yeah, um, that's a business
0: it, for this guy.
1: Yeah, all of his friends were just giving him their dead iPods. Then he discovered Spinrite and began running Spinrite on his iPods and fixed them all and was sort of handing them back to their friends saying, hey, uh, here's your iPod. It works again. So, yes, it absolutely will work on non-standard anythings. Um, You have to disconnect it and preferably hook it to a PC. That is, you know, take the drive and hook it to a PC. But if you do that, uh, Spinrite will say, oh, there's something spinning here. Let's make it work. It doesn't really okay. n- need
0: to know anything about the file system. Correct. The only issue would be on the Shaw if it's an encrypted file system. No, I guess it doesn't matter either. Doesn't it's all it underneath that, right?
1: Yep. And in fact, the, the TiVo uses a byte swapped Linux. Because it's a the original TiVo was a PowerPC chip that used a big endian oh, rather than little endian right. byte ordering, which was the or, the byte ordering of the PowerPC. And Spinrite says, I don't care. It just fixes it. That's awesome. So, whatever. Well done. Okay. So, is security going to go away? Um, there are a couple <laughs> things. A couple reactions. First of all, when when people generically ask me what they should do, my reaction is always, the the way you want to spend your life is doing what you love. So if you love computer science and security, uh, Joey, as you say you do, then I I would worry less about what you'll be doing in 30 years than in what you'll be doing in 10 years. And we know that these problems are not going to be solved immediately. Uh, we'll discuss the future in a second. But there's just—I I would never suggest you do something that you don't love because you're worried about 30 years from now than doing something that you do love for the next 10 years or probably for the rest of your life. So you know, there there are so many high school kids who don't love anything. I mean, they love video games and they love hanging out, but they love their they girlfriends. Can't, they can't, then they're girlfriends, <laughs> but they can't get a job doing right. that. Right. So the idea, and and you know, to, and to that extent, Leo is right. You are a mini me, in as much yeah. as you know, just like Leo, who you know loves what he does. When I when I talk about, oh, I'm going to get a lot of work done today, it's because I don't have any distractions scheduled, and I just get to do this you know, computer stuff all day long. There's nothing I want to do more. So, boy, if you can spend your life doing what you love, there's, there's, I mean, and having someone pay you for it, there's just no better way to live. Now, as for is there a future in this? Um, You know, I've often said that some of this feels to me like the Wild West, like we're still in the frontier era, and I, and I joke about how this just can't stay this bad forever except it seems to keep getting worse rather than getting better I mean we're seeing improvements like you know Microsoft is finally not you know executing scripts in email by default as they were during the beginning of this podcast that's been been fixed but boy we sure don't see any slowdown I mean we've we've now we've added a new section of you know breaches and uh and and break-ins because because there's just been such a rash of that so i i see things becoming you know evolving the, pro, the 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 threats seem to be getting more sophisticated and requiring a much higher level of expertise to deal with them rather than being simple so to me that says there'd be more specialization in security, but certainly no no obsolescence of that, and even if in 10, 15, 20 years the the challenge changed, um, you'll have a decade of experience in computers and technology and knowledge and detail stuff, and that'll evolve. I mean, I started off being Mr. Hard Drive, and my focus has shifted to security because there was a need and an interest. So, nothing prevents you from having your own expertise evolve over time. And, you know, growing and and learning is really how you want to spend your life. And, you know, the, 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 creation of the Internet completely changed my focus so who knows what your focus will be 30 years from now but I would say do what you love and if that changes over time well that's growth and that's a good thing
0: I think it's fairly safe to say that it's only gonna get worse yeah I don't see how security will ever not be
1: a huge issue well and yes another maybe a great analogy is to look at whether security in the physical world which is mature as right, people are. Right. That hasn't gone away. We I mean so the the whole security issue. At, you know, e, you know, even non-computer security is. I mean, that's why we have the word security. The, you know, the right. word came along before computers did. Actually, physical physical security is an interesting field. I, I wouldn't
0: even eschew that. Yep. You know, uh, even just locks. I I went to a a talk on locks and lock picking. It's fascinating. And, uh, and there's a huge uh, resurgence in trying to make physical security systems at work. So yep. you couldn't go wrong. You know, I think there are two areas that uh, in computer science are guaranteed to, uh, to give you employment for the next 40 years. One is networking and one is security. And they're kind of related. You know? Yep. I Listen think you're to this right. show. You'll know all you need to know. Good question. Good luck. Jimmy Blake, Sandusky, Ohio, wonders whether we're trying to mess with his head. He said that. You probably received this from a number of people already, but as someone that has recently decided to go back and listen to your earlier podcasts in the Security Now series, after realizing how in-depth you get with topics, it threw me for a loop when I saw How the Internet Works, both as the newest episode for me to watch last week after having just listened to episodes 25 and 26, which apparently I didn't know it has been a few years, where How the Internet Works works. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't be revisiting this series, because I love the new depth you're going into, and I believe that having several years of podcast experience now under your belt, you're doing a more thorough job explaining the principles of the internet than the first time around. I presume, Steve, that this is not a surprise to you. You knew we did it once before, right? Yep. Yeah. Thanks for all the hard work you do in always giving me a little more information on the topics I thought I understood pretty well. P.S. This is way off that topic, but after listening to some of your older crypto episodes... And watching the more recent episodes on randomness, I was wondering about using a hashing or an encryption algorithm as a source for random numbers. If, for example, you were writing a program in a programming language with poor random number generation, cough, basic, cough. But that also did... Actually, they all have lousy random number generation. That's not the mm. matter entirely. But that also did have built-in functions for hashing or encryption, couldn't you generate a random string using the built-in random number generator of the programming language, then feed that string through one of the hashing encryption functions, and then use the raw binary of the result as something with better entropy than the built-in random number generator could produce on its own? Since hashing and encryption algorithms generally rely on a lot of very good randomness. What
1: about it, Steve Arino? Okay, so two things. Um, I did know, of course, that we did a series on how the Internet works. Whew. 5 years ago. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> episodes 25 and 26. And um I decided it was worth revisiting deliberately because for one thing, I know that we've got a huge bunch of listeners who ha- are now tuned in and listening and may not have gone back there, but also because um I'm taking sort of a different approach. What I what I said Back on episodes 25 and 26 is not what I said last week, and so, uh, and I. By the way, I've just had a ton of really great feedback from last week's episode. Are um, revisiting how the internet works, um, which I think is worth doing every five years or so. <laughs> so um, I'm going to, even though it's got the same or similar title, um, I'm going to bring a fresh approach to. Are looking at it again, and I'm sure that people who've even been listening from the beginning will get more out of it in hearing new stuff about how the internet works this time. So, so yes. it's not like the technology is changing the technology is not changing although this time of course we will talk about ipv six and its oh, yeah. influence on how the internet works so th- th- some things are changing dns spoofing has happened since then and and so i'll pull everything that's happened then into the, this revisiting that but also i'm gonna i'm gonna do it with a you know a little more style maybe a little bit more depth in depth this time so that it builds on everything that we have covered in the last five and a half years. It gives me a better foundation for for talking about um, new stuff in additional detail. As for random number generating in like languages that have bad ones, the problem with the random number generators in most languages is, is not the algorithms so much as that they lack a good source of entropy that is a good source of seeding randomness which feeds the random number generator so if you just switched it over to a crypto-based approach which potentially can generate very good random numbers you still have the problem of if if your intention is to make it unpredictable then you need to somehow arrange to get the, to, to, well, to, to give it entropy in order for it to churn out random numbers based on a good algorithm, but from an unpredictable starting source. So that's really the trick. Um, I solved it with various of my recent pages where I've needed to generate randomness. Um, and we talked about one, that, that R&D page. I think it's grc.com slash r ampersand d slash j s dot htm, j s as, as in JavaScript dot which is where I wanted to develop the technology to do that for some future projects. Um, I have a a 256-bit token, which is received with that page from GRC, which I then hash with a whole bunch of client side stuff in order to generate something which we know has the entropy available from GRC, but then we then further scramble it so you're not actually taking what, what GRC's server provided. You're, you're adding entropy to it over on the client side which really gives you the best of both worlds you know you'll have a, at least as much entropy as you got from us which is a lot of entropy because we've got a very good random number generator running on the server GRC yet you won't have the security problem of relying on something from GRC so all you're doing is you're adding to the entropy you received which guarantees you have security from GRC knowing what you're using yet you have the the Added entropy that you're generating on the client side, so it's possible to do clever things like that. There is a site, I think it's randomness.org or randomnumbers.org. There, there's some. Um, it's been around for for a long time, for years. Uh, a source of of entropy that that anyone can pull on the internet that you could use from a basic program, for example, to generate some some seed entropy and then maybe add to it by following the mouse around or or looking at the time of day on the local machine, just pouring all that additional, hashing all that into a a seed which you would then use to start off a a good cryptographical based uh, random number generator. So those problems can be solved and they're fun to solve. We have a tweet from uh, Green
0: drive at green drive Alan Hoiberg in denmark he 's uh, making a very good point when he asks what 's to prevent is my credit card stolen? dot com by the way we uh, we, sh- we talked about that last week and I posted that on twitter and or maybe it was Google plus and got boy it got a lot of scared people but he said what 's to prevent is my credit card stolen dot com which was a site created by a very reputable group the antifishy fishing working group.org from serving up a page it does actually post data once in a while. In other words, could it have been malicious? By the way, I don't know if you know Steve, but it D open DNS
1: blocked it as malicious. Yes. They didn't bother um, to look deeper, obviously. This was I love this question because it's something I failed to address. And it it comes up whenever we're talking about something that looks trustworthy, or for example, I mentioned that I looked at before. I, I mean, I when, when I found the site and it's saying put in your credit card and your name and your billing address and your your expiration date and things. It's like no, and and I never did, but I looked at the source and I saw that it. I saw what it was doing. So Alan makes the point, and which is I, which I wanted to reiterate, or 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 really remind our listeners, and that is, what a site is doing today isn't necessarily what it's going to be doing tomorrow. And that's a super valuable lesson. Um, So, you're right, Leo, this is from really good people. We want to, you'd want to make sure that it was being delivered over HTTPS to prevent a man-in-the-middle attack from changing what that Page is delivering, and this is uh, this is related to what we talked about with well with with Google, which was that that Chrome is now if your if your page comes in over HTTPS, Chrome's the Chrome browser is now enforcing and insisting that any scripting for the page also come over HTTPS. That is not allowing. The sort of the laxity of a mixed content where the, the where the the scripting would not be as secure as the page delivery, other browsers would warn you that there was there was mixed content but wouldn't absolutely refuse, for example, to run the script if you said, "Oh yeah, go ahead, whereas Google Chrome does which is a good thing but it's it's it is a lesson to remember that that you know any site which is Behaving in a trustworthy fashion on one day, which you determine, for example, by looking at what the scripting is, isn't necessarily doing it on some other day in the future. So it's it's worth keeping your guard up all the time. And I just that that caught me off guard. It's like, yep, you know, Alan's right. What we 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 cannot assume what's going to happen in the future. We just don't know. I don't. Was it irresponsible of me to repost that link? Mm, I don't don't think so. Because it's from, a good, it's from good people, and it is, um, uh, you know, I would say the, the benefit far outweighs the, the liability. Certainly raised
0: uh, awareness, let's put it that yes, way. Yes, yes. Tim in Maryland wants to know more about randomness. He says, Steve, you talked about how randomness is a very important cryptography uh, issue, but I, I just don't understand why. How can you use something random in a process that must be repeatable in order to decrypt? I thought the whole idea is that your password is somehow used to generate a key, which is then used to encrypt the data. You certainly can't use a random key because how would you ever decrypt it? This has bugged me for some time now, and I can't seem to find any clear description on it. I'm sure it matters, but I don't know why.
1: Okay, so it's, it's a great question. Um, the The best example and the cleanest example is, is the key. The use of randomness, which is very common, for example, every time we make an SSL connection, or also known as TLS, Transport Layer Security, uh, and which we see as HTTPS colon on our browsers, every time we're putting credit card information in or logging in securely to a website, it's establishing a secure connection and a and randomness plays in that the idea is that you use you use public key encryption that is to say asymmetric encryption to to establish a an encrypted connection between the two points but the asymmetric encryption is incredibly slow you you cannot possibly afford to use asymmetric encryption where the server for example gives you its public key. If you use the public key to en- encrypt your content you could send it to the server which could and, and only the private key could decrypt what you encrypted with its public key. So that 's feasible theoretically, but the problem is that public key crypto, which is what we want to use because of its its asymmetry, that, that the whole power of having a public key and a and a private key, we want to use it, but it's just too slow so this is where randomness comes in because we do have an encryption technology which is lightning speed and that's symmetric key encryption where we use the same key to encrypt as we decrypt, except, except in this case we want the effect of public key encryption without the, the computational overhead. So what happens is um, and i 'll just take a very simplified model to keep this clear uh, the imagine that instead the our side our our sender we get the we get the public key from the server Now we make up we use randomness to to create a a short two fifty six bit for example symmetric key that we encrypt. We encrypt that short symmetric key with the server's public key. So, we're only encrypting a, something small one time with the, with the public key technology. And we send that to the server, which only it is able to decrypt using its, um, its private key and now i know what the symmetric key was the server has our decrypted symmetric key and now we can we can transact back and forth at very high speed and with low computational overhead using the symmetric key so so the the point is in order to make that secure we have to be able to generate a symmetric key randomly with very high quality so that no bad guys can guess what that symmetric key is so there, there's a a very clean instance or, or, a, or a, a simplified example for how randomness is required for cryptography um, because it's, um, it, it, it's just far easier for us to use asymmetric encryption to, to create a short key, which is then transmitted to someone who can decrypt it, and when we use that, that we then we use that short key for the actual bulk uh, payload transaction, and it works.
0: I I always like that kind of clever solution. Ah. It's 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 the same problem you have in the old days. This is how I remember it: when you wanted to you know encode a message, you'd have to send the key somehow and that was a huge security flaw yep. uh, because you have a symmetric key it's the same key used to encode as to decode so public key cryptography kind of broke through that problem but exactly. still had, had this asymmetry of computational uh difficulty greg in north hollywood california wonders about memory hard functions Stephen leo in episode 296 listener feedback number 115 you said quote steve but imagine an algorithm which is memory-intensive, that is, where in order for it to function, and there's just no way around this, it has to be given a big, like a gig, memory block. And it has to have it all to itself for some length of time in order for it to do its job. And, and there just isn't, you can demonstrate cryptographically, there's no way to do this without it having access to all of that memory. And those are called memory-hard problems. So he continues, I'm running a desktop computer with 8 gigs of RAM. I need it for VMware, long story. Some desktop motherboards support up to 32 gigs of RAM. As you noted, GPUs, the graphics processing units, have 4 to 6 gigs of video RAM. Some motherboards will support up to 4 video cards. Now, I think that the context was using FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays. (laughs) I'm not following this at all. And the problem of an FPGA having a few gigs of RAM. Is that the problem, Steve? Okay. I don't know what he's talking about.
1: So it was a great question. Good. Um, <laughs> what, what does it talk- mean?
0: Would you rephrase as a question? What he's talking.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and it's something that we will cover in more detail in the future. But we did talk about it as he mentioned um, back on episode 296. The idea was that that massive password cracking systems are are able to, for example, test a huge number of hashes in a short time because the hashes were designed to be very efficient like an SHA256 is is deliberately designed to be to be very fast so for example one of the ways that we increase the security is we make you do the hash many times the WPA specification requires 4096 repeated hashes of the like you just hash and then you rehash that and you rehash that and you rehash it in a loop 4096 times so however much time it takes to do one hash this at least makes that 4096 times longer and Due to the nature of hashing, there's no one knows how to short circuit that. No one knows how to just like do one operation that gives you the result of 4,096 hashing operations. It because it's cryptographically strong. We don't know how to do do that faster. Forcing anyone who wants to 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 generate a trial key, for example, in the case of WPA Wi-Fi. encryption, they ha- they're forced to do this 4,096 times. Well, smart people have said, you know, you could design an FPGA, a field programmable gate array, that ha- because they're getting bigger and more powerful, where you built 4,096 SHA-256 hashing engines on a single chip. So... Essentially, you, you move this problem out of the time domain and out of like a loop which our computers have to execute just into silicon where you, you put a test in and this piece of hardware just goes and just in no time at all, almost like in a big pipeline where, where all 4,096 of these SHA-256 hashing engines are going at once processing hashes you could make it extremely fast so because of the threat represented by our ability to to create algorithmically dense silicon the leading-edge smart guys who think about how do we increase security they've said wait a minute it's one thing to have algorithmic density but if we also required memory density that is if we if we required if we came up with some sort of clever functions which are which they call memory hard functions that is functions which are not algorithmically dense but they're they're memory intensive then there's no way for example you could put 4096 of those if each one of them required a gig of their own well that would be 4096 gigs in order to do do this same process so so essentially this is sort of a theoretical construction at this point this is the leading edge of where crypto theory is going in terms of okay we're we're seeing what GPUs are doing, we're seeing what what field programmable gate arrays are allowing, how can we keep the security of cryptography high? How can we keep that bar high in the face of, of algorithmic speed? And what they're seeing is that requiring large blocks of memory which our contemporary machines do have, but which screamingly fast algorithmic density doesn't yet have, is one trick we can use for keeping these things hard and slow. So that's what that was about.
0: Well, I'm relieved to no. know. <laughs> Randy Hammock in Sun Valley, California, has an AC power line frequency tail. I had an uncle who worked in a small power plant. Their frequency, we were talking uh, last week, I think, about how the fact that the 60 hertz electrical power was going to kind of be deregulated so it wasn't yep. exactly whatever it was 59.98 hertz or whatever. I have an uncle who worked on a small power plant. Their frequency regulator was a clock with two second hands. One second hand was driven by the power line while the other was driven by a very accurate pendulum clock. Oh, boy. The pendulum clock speed was controlled by adding and subtracting small gold weights on a balance scale. WWV was used to verify the pendulum clock time. That's the world clock in uh, Boulder, Colorado. The radio clock. Once the pendulum clock was calibrated using WWV, the generator speed would be adjusted to keep the two second hands in sync. While the short-term frequency of the generator may be awful, this system would pretty much assure a two second per year accuracy, which was what the government required. A really neat example of a generator being manually phase locked to a highly accurate standard. That's a
1: cool way of doing it. I just thought that was cool. I mean, you can imagine it's I mean, I guess it was a small power plant, and yeah. I don't know I I don't know how long ago this was. But, you know, the idea of going into the power plant and it's here's some wacky clock where, you know, where you've got two seconds hands, and the engineer somewhere is looking at them, literally seeing which one is ahead of the other and, you know, speeding up or slowing down the generator whose actual spin, the actual coils on the generator are what's producing the sine wave output that this power plant is putting out onto the grid and so they're they 're tuning the speed of the generator one um, wh- which is directly driving one of the hands of this of the two second hands on the clock, the other one being driven by a pendulum which you know and, and pendulums actually keep really good speed. You need to also keep them constant temperature or to have them temperature compensated because um if the if the pendulum is made of metal we know that metal expands when it gets warmer and that would tend to slow the clock speed down but then they're also backing that up with wwv which is the fort collins colorado time standard uh, as you mentioned leo so you know overall fort collins, it looks like right. it's pretty good pretty good technology i said boulder fort collins of course fort collins Drew in Atlanta
0: wonders about the value of IP filtering. Steve, my Google account was recently breached. Oops. I was made aware of the breach by Google reporting unusual access to my account from a Chinese IP address. I've never been to China. Luckily, I was able to update my password, and I haven't seen anything unusual since, but it still leaves me a little uncomfortable with the idea that my account could be accessed from anywhere, when I usually only find myself in a few specific locations. So I was wondering... How practical would it be for a company like Google to set up user-controlled IP filtering for individual accounts? As a network admin, I frequently use IP filtering to prevent malicious use. It would be nice if I could go into my account security settings and explicitly tell Google my account should never be accessed from outside the U.S. Or drill down even further and say my account should never be accessed from outside the subnets used by my home ISP and smartphone carrier. Anyway, it was just a thought I had. I was curious how to get your take on it. I've been working in IT for more than six years now, and I've been listening to security now for nearly an entire time. Interestingly enough, my very first job in IT was to rebuild computers compromised by the worms you discussed in episode one. Hmm. Thanks for your time, Drew. Yeah, we, I, my sysadmins do that for, um, for my server anyway. Because um, I, I know, because I was trying to SSH into my server, and I said, I can't get in. And they said, oh, yeah, we hadn't added that uh, IP address. So it's, uh, that's great. That's a good way to lock it down.
1: It is a great way to lock it down, and, and I similarly use that for accessing non-public services at GRC. Mm-hmm. I've, all, I've got GRC's network is remotely located at, in the Level 3 data center um, in nearby Tustin, and there are... I, I use IP filtering to the the fixed block of IPs that I have here as as a further way of authenticating myself to my system. I certainly don't don't rely on that exclusively, but it's just one more useful um, filter. And as we know, uh, we'll be talking about TCP protocol before long in our How the Internet Works series. And I've I've often said that TCP, unlike, for example, ICMP or UDP, is non-spoofable. That is, you cannot spoof the source IP because in order to set up a round-trip communication, the far end has to send packets back to you. So you've got to be available at that IP. I would say to like in, in terms of you know, how can this be fooled that it is not Absolutely impossible to fool IP filtering, though, because, for example, say that you were to lock down filtering so that was so that you could deal with, for example, the fact that your ISP might vary your IP address. Drew understood that because because he referred to um, outside the outside the subnets used by his home ISP. And smartphone carrier, meaning that he recognized that the actual IP might change, but the network that um, was being used would probably not. So it would stay within a range of, of IP addresses. The problem is a proxy is something that bounces traffic through itself, so that if you were a high value target, a bad guy could you could compromise some other machine within your ISP's network and then access your Google account for example. So if Google were told to accept IPs within this range in order to allow you the flexibility of coming in from any IP within IP address within your ISP's um, range then a bad guy could, could get in Using a compromised machine within that same IP range, so there there are ways around it. Um, I, I mean, overall, I like the idea. My sense is it's probably a little too techy for for Google to do, and not the kind of things that, that that their users would be able to do without getting themselves in trouble. Like, well, or or needing to then follow fall back to a, a higher level of authentication. We were talking about this in the context of um, the. Uh, World of Warcraft and the Blizzard authentication token, and how they're using apparently some IP filtering or IP identification and some tokens on the machine in order to identify their users. Um, you can, you know, you know, your sysadmins. I'm glad to hear Leo are are doing that kind of thing. It's a it's another good level of of um, of verification. But your a perfect example is that you got caught out by it. So it is something that comes with some cost from from an right. and from an administration standpoint.
0: You know, Google. If you go to the bottom of your Gmail page, does give you information? I mean, you can you can look at if I click the details link at the bottom of my GPA, Gmail the most page, recent logins. It says activity on this account. And yes. It gives IP addresses of all the most recent logins, and this is very very useful. Um, you you know, and if you see China on here and you don't go to China, you might want to wonder. That that's what Google's doing lately. Right. Um, but this is
1: fantastic. And I do love it. We, we we talked about this a long time ago when Google added this service. The right. idea that they would say, whoa, by the way, uh, you should know. And that's just that's just fantastic.
0: And, of course, they have a setting that says show an alert for unusual activity. So I would say this is about as close as they're going to get to blocking individual IP addresses or only allowing certain IP addresses. Yeah. It's, it's going to tell good. you when it sees something it's not seen before. I think that's pretty good.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would like it if... If, for example, if you had a setting of saying, rather than giving me an alert, if somebody else has accessed my account from China, right. um, require any unexpected access, some higher level of authentication. There you go. What's that the password? Be- yeah. Yeah. Ask me again. Yeah. Send a message to my tech my uh, cell exactly. phone. Exactly. Yeah. Require that extra authentication for those instances, but yeah. not normally.
0: Right that's not unusual a lot of a lot of systems do that yep. rob galanti in uh, new york new york asks about oauth as a security risk steve i'm a longtime listener in the city thanks for the great podcast while listening to episode 308 you and leo were both proponents of oauth and Auth. however i've always thought that using my gmail credentials for non-google sites might be more likely to compromise my security Here's how. A nefarious website posing as a legitimate one requires my OAuth credentials for login. Is Google password. Naively, I enter my credentials. Well, I mean, this could happen to you without OAuth. This is called phishing. Naively, I enter my credentials specifying there for Google and submit the form. Upon submit, the credentials are captured by the nefarious website and can be used to get to my Google data and any other site which might use those credentials. Is that a realistic liability? And if so... Doesn't that outweigh the potential benefits of using OAuth or similar technologies? Thanks again. Keep the Security Now podcast
1: coming, Rob. Well, this oh. was a good question because I wanted to make sure people understood, and specifically Rob and, and anybody else, that's not the way OAuth works. Right. Um, you I mean, don't... you could be phished.
0: Right. I mean, yes. But, so that's, and that, but that's not an OAuth vulnerability. That's a vulnerability where somebody so, puts so, up a page
1: that you think is real and says, hey, log in here. And you go, okay. Yep. So if if, if a bad site were to say, hey, we support Google's authentication. Um, Give me your Google credentials. Well, unfortunately, some users are going to fall for that. They're going to put their Google stuff in thinking, hey, that's cool. You know, I'll use Google to authenticate because they may have done that elsewhere or know that Google offers that capability. But that's, as you said, Leo, that's not OAuth. The way a legitimate site uses OpenAuth correctly is they, they, they say you can create an account with us or log in with, uh, with our credentials or you can log in with us using your Google credentials through OAuth. What, what happens then is you are bounced over to Google and you'll see an SSL connection and so you give Google your Google credentials, and Google authenticates your login, and then bounces you back to the site that 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 is using OAuth and Google, um, and and there are cryptographic token exchange sort of behind the scenes that you don't see that allows allows this site to say what it's requesting from Google. Google shows you what the site is requesting. You give Google per- permission to give the site those things that it is asked for and then it takes you back. So you're, so no one other than Google ever sees your Google credentials. As you said, Leo, it's, it's a little worrisome because it does repli- it does require that the user understand this and the very fact that Rob asked the question demonstrates that they, you know, it's subject to some some confusion, and no doubt uh, we'll see people abusing this as it becomes more popular. But it's it's not a function or a fault of OpenAuth. It's that you know social engineering attacks are, are unfortunately work. successful. Yes,
0: yeah. I mean that's the whole point to OAuth was that you would only, you would never give credentials to anybody but the appropriate site and that they right. pass along a token oh,
1: and i love it and the early the early problems there were a couple implementation problems that got fixed early on so i i really promote this i'm seeing more use of paypal and much as i really dislike the paypal company um, i sure would rather authenticate with PayPal then give my credit card informi- information to some random company that I'm never going to use again. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's it you know this kind of thing where it's boys it's slow to happen but it's it's a good trend. Constantine
0: in Toronto asks you about the Portable Dog Killer 2.0. Stephen a security now listener since day one. I love the show. I've subscribed and I listen to all the other shows but for me security now hits my sweet spot, baby. One of my favorite episodes is The Portable Dog Killer. And while I enjoyed the philosophical, educational, and humorous aspect of it, I could not see an immediate use of it when I listened back in May 2010. Well, that is until now. We bought our first house in last We bought our first house last September, moving from an apartment. Our neighbor has a very loud, it's okay, Ozzy, he's not talking about you, and sometimes vicious dog, that's not you, no, it isn't, Ozzy, that scares my two- and five-year-old kids when they play outside our fenced backyard. Ozzy's taking this very personally. (laughs) I bought the Yard Guard electronic pest repeller from UrbanNatureStore.ca, but it seems to be too weak to chase away the beast. I then found (laughs) one person, apparently a Security Now listener, Who made the PDK 1.5 and published his progress at damage.hackhut.com? However, his instructions are not complete and difficult to digest. You know where I'm going with this. Steve, 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 the community needs you to build PDK 2.0 and publish up to date instructions on how to make one of my own. I feel it will be against the spirit of invention and exploration you and Leo are trying to inject into the minds of a young generation. But I hope you read this and somehow reflect on one of the next episodes of Security Now. Sincerely, Constantine, Toronto, Ontario. Canada. <laughs> okay. I love so, it.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, so I've got to update our listeners on what's going on. Okay. There's been a huge amount of interest in PDK 2.0. But the first thing we have to do is change the name. Because yeah, that scares people. Yeah, I'm so self-conscious of of the name. So, but the uh, P.D.T. the portable dog distractor. uh, I don't think. Well, okay. So here's here's what's going on. The moment, literally the week I mentioned this bad problem that my best buddy has with this ridiculously obnoxious dog next door. The problem went away. So, I mean, this he'd been putting up with it for a year. Uh, it had been escalating um, he 'd been complaining to the neighbor. They finally like visited or heard the dog when it was doing this and realized the problem they, they 've been far better better about it ever since at the same time um, there 's a serious problem on the outdoor patio at Starbucks in the morning. <laughs> not with a dog but with blackbirds or crows oh
0: those crows yeah no oh, they're crows yeah
1: it is like a yeah. the social center yeah. of crowland
0: no when the crows move in all the other oh. birds move out they're the, they're the terrors of the neighborhood
1: well and they're smart and loud and i'm not yeah and, and aggressive and yes and in fact today this i'm not nobody's going to complain
0: up. if you make a portable crow killer
1: well, so we gotta kill. We gotta remove the the, the K from the name. How about stun? We well, my friend wants to call this BFG.
0: What's that? So the oh, I never mind. I know where that is.
1: <laughs> and the listeners who should know do know. So, um, okay. So BFG. The problem is that crows' hearing does not nearly go up to ultrasonic to no. out of our hearing range. No, they're deaf because uh, they're crying all the time. Their hearing tends to roll off around eight or nine kilohertz. How do you know this? Did you have you studied crow physiology? Leo, I am building. A, <laughs> I am building something that will deal with these, <laughs> this crow problem. So yes, I know oh, all about Steve. bird frequency ranges oh, now Steve, of hearing. Oh, Steve, oh, Steve. So I'm selecting the pieces. Um, I, there, something will be shared with the world. Um, it'll be microprocessor-based. Um, I've I found th- the various pieces. Now, okay, but, so, so that's one thread. <laughs> In the process, I needed to find a good parabolic reflector. Remember, our listeners may remember that I was thinking of using a tuned tube yeah. with a tweeter at the end where the tube would be tuned to be a multiple of the wavelength of the sound, yes. I can't use a tuned tube if I want to also be be down at at at, an, at a frequency that the birds could hear. Because if I if we did something that was up at the at the end of human hearing range, the dogs could hear it, but the birds would. Be unaffected by it, right. um, and and frankly, for me, dogs are not a problem anymore. Now it's um, those but,
0: darn birds.
1: But they are a problem for many people because yes. the other thing that happened is, many people have sent have since the PDK episode have sent me links to a range of things. And you may remember when I was talking about version two of the portable dog killer, I mentioned I had purchased like, I don't know, ten or eleven of these things. And, and given them to Mark to try to see whether, you know, before, before finally thinking, okay, I'm just going to have to recreate something that's serious. Okay, so <laughs> www.amazingnumeral1.com is a very cool science related site that I found when I was looking for some pieces for version two. Oh, so we got all kinds
0: of stuff. Look at this. Yeah, this is great.
1: It, it's a fantastic site. man. Oh, I want to first turn our listeners on to it. They got Tesla coils and de Graaff generators and Jacobs ladders and it just it's cool stuff. This is there great hydrogen powered cannon. Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a section on there on that home page. Yeah ultrasonic and infrasonic devices. Mm, apparently this is not an unusual desire. The top, pro- the top one, there is the second um, thing listed as animal and dog control, but, but use property protection. Ultrasonics for property protection. Oh, look at that parabolic uh, sucker. Actually that's going to be the one I use. That 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 silver parabolic will it says, be
0: hear the incredible world of high frequency sounds beyond that detectable. So this is a receiver but I guess it could be a transmitter.
1: Exactly. I've got two of those on order right now. Two of those they uh, just They're Not the cheap,
0: dude. These are these are expensive.
1: Uh but yeah, a couple hundred I'm just, bucks. I'm all I'm doing is getting the parabolic refle- uh, the, the, the the parabolic dish. dish. That's only $50. Okay. Yeah. Look at this, uh, a sonic
0: and, nausea device.
1: Oh, keep going down, Leo. There, are some, there is some serious technology here this for, is, saying, this is, for, for dealing this, with dogs. And this stuff
0: is not illegal. Great little electronic device that can use, be used to clear out those guests that never want to leave long there's after the party that is makes over. Makes you nauseous, apparently. Uh, High pitched sounds that are hard to locate. This is obviously aimed at teenagers. Then there's the <laughs> phaser pain field blaster. Complex sonic shockwaves. The phaser blast wave pistol. See, Steve, I thought you were a reprobate. These guys are far worse. Phaser pain field generator. Yes.
1: Intended for law enforcement personnel. They have have some things that generate 130 dB at several meters, and they have grids of um, high-frequency generators that work in some sort of phased array for... For dealing with this, so I did want to let listeners know that because I I have no timeline for this, I'm pulling pieces together. I will document everything I do. We'll make it a community project. I found the microprocessor. (laughs) It's only wait a minute ultrasonic blaster. Sonic shockwaves blow holes in metals. (laughs) (laughs) That ought to do the job. I don't know if you really should be selling this stuff. There's something that cavitates water. So you aim it at water and it makes bubbles form in the water.
0: So this has to be, this has to cause cancer.
1: (laughs) That is just unbelievable that this exists. So, yeah, I wanted to let people know that there are technologies around, there are devices. Uh, not super inexpensive, not like your little handheld b- thing that does nothing. But these things really do like, look like they work. So and they also have all sorts of insect electrocuters, <laughs> dog and rodent zappers.
0: control devices. Yep. here's a sonic bird chaser. Might just work fine for you.
1: So I want So it's a m a z i n g numeral one dot com. And that particular page is slash ultra dot for reasons we now understand. Well, listen, this, this, this will do canine controller. <laughs> it's got four tweeters. Holy so cow! This and is a not pain what...
0: field burst section. <laughs> <laughs> this, whoever thinks this stuff up has got a problem. I think.
1: Well, and they—I mean—they've got some Tesla coils that are larger than people. Yeah, huge. I mean, you, I mean, this is, It's a cool site. I thought our listeners oh, were going to kick out of the so site. Cool. And, and it will solve the problem for people who, are, who want a problem now. <laughs> so, Got 10 grand? How about a 2 million volt output generator? Yeah, Tesla why
0: coiler. Why not?
1: So my gadget is going to be very flexible. For example, the, the plan is you'll be able to aim it at a, at, a, at, a gla- at a crystal glass and twing it with your finger, this thing will record and lock onto the frequency and then you'll be able to turn it around mm-hmm. and destroy the glass by, by shooting it with the same frequency that is, is its natural resonant frequency. So anyway, it's going to be a, 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 a modern microprocessor based next generation toy. Uh, that I'm going to put together, and I will. Sh- it'll be all open source, and I'll share all the pieces and parts and everything with everybody. We have
0: a little kitty cat lover in the uh, chat room says, is it safe for cats? I would imagine if it scares dogs or birds, cats aren't going to be happy about
1: it either. Yeah, they're not going to be happy. No. Yeah, so I don't know what safe means. This is, <laughs> I mean, so unsafe. Why, it, that's why we're just changing <laughs> it into, I wanted to call it the sonic interocitor, uh, but... But I'm not sure. And of course that pays homage to one of the best sci fi movies of all time. Uh the Inter was what Cal Meacham built when he received instructions mysteriously in the mail, uh, in the movie This Island Earth. So, oh, wow, that is, is an obscure reference. <laughs> well, I'll bet you we've got listeners who oh, go the Inter- Interroseter. I, I remember Interrositor. Yeah. Yep. So there's,
0: there's another guy in the chair who says, is there anything that's guaranteed to work on cats? <laughs> well, how are cats bothering anybody? I don't. Cats are nice.
1: They don't bark.
0: No. They just Their pictures
1: keep showing up on Google+. That's the only thing wrong with them. Okay. So anyway, now, so listeners who want something which is not wimpy, which looks to me like it clearly works. Or can, sets can, things can, on fire. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> they have a video on their site. Uh, from a tech TV show called Invent This, in which they uh, they show their interest in know, dangerous stuff.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, the, these are not wimpy solutions. Use at your own risk. They are available uh, pre-built or also in kit form. You can buy the plans only and download them immediately online uh interesting site which i ran across because i was looking for a parabolic dish and that led me to everything else it's not the kind of thing i'm going to build i'm going to build something very cool uh and and very powerful um, i have uh i found 200 watt um, class d which is to say class digital uh, switching audio amplifiers which will which one of which will be used for for driving this thing uh, and I'll, I'll, as I pull the pieces together, I'll end up, uh, sharing it all with our listeners. Uh, but in the meantime, there are solutions that exist, which, uh, do not look like they are wimpy. <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> no
0: wimpy solutions here. A couple of people came up with the same thing for you. Mark Ping in Chico, California says, you might be wrong about encrypting first name, last name. You said there's nothing preventing a service from encrypting our personal info. But imagine a customer service uh, searching the database for a caller's name, having to decrypt the name columns before searching. That That's not going to work. He says everything besides name info could be encrypted. And uh, Simon Lingshid in uh, Denmark argues, In Security Now 308, where you and Leo talk about a listener question, a listener asks why customer data isn't always encrypted on corporate servers. Your answer is it should be and that there's no overhead in doing so for the developers and the company. I'm currently working on a web shop for my employer, and I'm having a hard time seeing how we should encrypt all customer data without adding a huge overhead. If you store your customer data in an SQL database, aren't you forced to decrypt data every time you need to look for something? Let's assume we use your email address as the username. If this, is where, if this were encrypted, the database would no longer be able to do a lookup. You would have to decrypt every row in the accounts table to find the account you're looking for. Similarly, you need to be able to do customer support, and customers are capable of forgetting pretty much everything, which means you need to be able to look through the database tables by name, address, phone, email, pretty much everything. Having the data encrypted would make it very hard to find anything. You'd either have your application encrypt the input data and simply look for that. But that would mean that queries such as, you know, the select query using your name Steve wouldn't work. Not even if you encrypted Steve as the encrypted version, it'd look like anything would look anything like the encrypted version of steve could you share your ideas on how this would work i think we i think we probably get the message maybe it was a bad idea
1: So, um, my database uh... behind uh... my e-commerce system is encrypted and we have i don't know hundreds of thousands of records and uh... sue is able to pull up anyone's record instantaneously how does she, so it does it decrypt the database and then do the search or does she keep a decrypted version in memory no neither um, the the technology is, is the the one you want and i am i do not know what sql does but i do know that sql does offer encryption I just don't know at what level it operates, and I've never needed to know because I've never used it. Because I would never ever use SQL for my own stuff. Um, this database, my database, encrypts it at the block level because encryption is much faster than reading oh, and writing yeah. data. Sure. And so, and so, for example, um, as the data is as the data comes off the disk, we just run. It's, it uses blowfish as it happens uh which is a very fast and secure uh cipher it it decrypts this block and it may read like 16k blocks so it decrypts it and so everything the system sees the system sees it as in the clear yet what's stored on the disk is absolutely pseudo random noise so if someone were to get into our system and somehow get that data file its of ab- absolutely no use to them so it, it's certainly the case that if you needed to like, call an encryption function to decrypt a record then that would be really bad and it's not what i meant um, and i agree with these guys that if that's what they're thinking then they're correct you know you couldn't search um, the database, but assuming that SQL's encryption is implemented correctly, and again, I haven't looked at it, and I intended to uh, by the time we had this question come up, but but we um, changed our recording day. Um, Sorry about that. That's all right.
0: I should mention so, we did that because uh, normally we do the show on Wednesday. We're doing it on Tuesday. Because we expect Apple to make some big announcements on Wednesday, so we flip-flopped you with MacBreak Weekly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so uh, I I'm, imagine that next week or the week after, I will, we'll have listeners who do know the answer to this question, so I'll punt to them. Um, but it is absolutely possible for the file itself to be kept encrypted and for there to be zero performance overhead. And I'm hoping that's what SQL did uh, and if so, if we've got, for example, Simon, if you could look into that, see if there's a way to perform low-level encryption so that it's on the fly as the data is being written to the drive, then there, you, you should be able to perform lookups uh, uh, absolutely without any overhead or, or problem at all.
0: Well, Tom in Germany says, no, Steve, you can't encrypt everything. On Security Now 308, you talked about the reasons why companies don't encrypt all their user data. I mentioned there's no real reason why. I agree there's no computational overhead. And that it can work securely for some services. There are services which provide infrastructure. These are services which provide infrastructure. But you're the only one with access to your data. For instance, LastPass. However, the vast majority of services don't work this way. You and the service need access to parts of your data. Therefore, there have to have a key, too, right? If a cracker gets the database, what prevents him from stealing the keys? It's the same problem as with DRM on home entertainment products. As you yourself stated, it can't be secure because key and encrypted data are accessible by the player, which can be accessed if you exchange player with server and access with broken into. You see, there's no real difference between stealing plain text DB files alone and stealing encrypted DB files and the keys. I'm a security advocate myself. I think the situation could be improved but I respectfully disagree that it's possible to securely encrypt all data and all services. Please excuse my English. It's not my mother tongue. Thanks for the great podcast and greetings to you and Leo as well. Tom, your English is excellent.
1: I was going to say, Tom in Germany's English is much better than Steve in Irvine's German. (laughs) That's for sure true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Tom, I completely agree with you. It's a function of what we mean by secure um, is it more secure to encrypt the data before it's stored on the drive? And I'm sure you would agree with me that it is more secure. Is it absolutely unbreakably secure? No, because you're right. The it, it is it is very much like the DRM problem where we know we can't encrypt dvds because the player has to decrypt it in order to show it to us and that's in the hands of the consumer um, its from from for example the attacks we've seen have have been files stolen from systems and those files if encrypted don't do the bad guys any good if if you could steal them post encryption then obviously the encryption is not helping you and you're not getting more security yet the cost is so low to store the files encrypted that my point was everything should be there is no cost there is it is not perfect security admitted because the system can decrypt the data itself but it really it raises the bar substantially for the bad guys to get the keys because they could be stored on a different box, or they could be stored in a YubiKey um, offline encrypted container. I mean, there are there are ways to make the keys much harder to get to than the data. Um, for example, my system, um, it it derives the key on the fly, and that's nowhere available in the machine. So I mean, I I may have over-engineered this, but uh, you know, I was designing this with security as a priority. So, you know, you can make it very difficult if you want to. Perfect? No. As we know, you could argue there's no such thing as perfect security, but the cost is is virtually zero to store everything encrypted if you can decrypt it on the fly. And I'd much rather have my files stored as random data so that, for example, if someone came along and grabbed the hard drive, they've got nothing because the keys aren't there. And there are certainly ways to to make that happen. Our last question comes from Simon Hart in Burwell, North
0: Cambridge, England. He's wondering about ISO files on USB keys. Stephen Leo I've been long-time... Listeners, secure now very much enjoy listening to it, blah, blah, blah. I was interested in hearing the episode...
1: <laughs> blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, I,
0: everybody <laughs> says nice things. Thank yeah, you. We right, appreciate right. your nice things. I was interested to hear the episode recently when one of your listeners recommended burning an ISO to a USB stick in order to create read-only media. I, too, have been playing with the possibility of using a USB stick for sysadmin. Actually, I'm trying to... Uh, Get multiple ISOs on the stick so it could be used, selected, uh, you could select the ISO using the grub loader from Linux. I too thought this would be a good way to create a read-only environment and was going to suggest it to the show. However, a doubt crept in before I did. Surely the reason to boot from read-only media is to avoid the cross-infection of suspect machines. But simply burning an ISO to a USB key does not make the USB stick read-only, it just makes the booted environment read-only. If I put the same stick into an infected machine, the infection can still place malicious files on the USB key which potentially could cause another machine to be infected or am I missing something, Simon?
1: You are missing something, Simon, because that USB stick does not have a file system. Ah. That is that you know we're th- we're used to thinking of a USB stick as 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 you know you just store files on it so you're not storing the ISO file that is you know dot ISO in like a fat or you know an EXT Linux partition file system or NTFS or anything you're actually burning the ISO to the USB so the the USB stick does not have a file system that the, that a another computer could write to because it has an iso um, it, ha- it has an iso cd ROM file system which doesn't have the ability to be written to the uh, the operating system recognizes it as a read only file system and it, it's been Created and and closed, so it cannot be modified. So it's it's not a a a normal read-writeable file system containing an ISO file. It is that file as the file system. So there's nowhere to write to. Well, there you go. It's it's, it's a clever solution. Clever. Now again, not I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it is the as secure as a hardware write protection. Because, in theory, you could have somebody modify the ISO file system. I mean, it's not going to happen. But, no. in theory, it could. So, if you're a belt-suspenders person, I would do both. Um, burn the ISO file system to USB and have hardware write protection on that USB stick. And, as we know, those are available.
0: Or just use a CD or DVD. You could do that, too.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Steve Gibson is the man in charge of the Gibson Research Corporation. That's why you'll find him at grc.com. You'll also find that that's his Twitter handle, at sggrc. And uh, if you go to grc.com slash feedback, you can ask questions for our next feedback episode, two two episodes. Hence, are we going to go back next week to the Internet
1: uh, basics? Um, We're not going to immediately because something came up that just wound my clock. Uh Uh-oh. Um, someone tweeted me. His name was Walid, W-A-L-I-D, or at Walid on on Twitter. He pointed me to a security breach that has long been standing. I think thirteen years is the number that stands out in my mind. This was a mistake that was found in the Open Wall um, system. It's a, I think it uses Blowfish as a hash. The reason I bring it up is that it was. It is a. I've I've so often talked about using generalities. I've talked about how hard it is to be perfect with security. How easy it is to make a mistake. It happens that this particular mistake, which is exi- which exists in Linux systems all over the world, that's been in the has been in the code for 13 years, is is a perfect example of a of something that people could look at day in and day out and never see what was wrong mm. it involves the C language it involves some some things that the compiler does for you that is really subtle and i realized that it is it would make a perfect episode because i'm going to explain about about um... Uh, types and character and integer types and uh, this little bit of code and what it does. It's going to be a propeller head episode, one of our, you know, ones that's going to make people think. But I can explain this so that everyone is going to be able to understand it and get it. And I'm just, I'm excited. So so the Internet series is going to be, an ongoing thing, but when something like this or something really important newsy comes along, you know, we'll will interrupt that in order to, to to deal with something else. With this, with how the internet works series sort of happening, uh, to fill in the gaps in the background. Okay, so fantastic. next week we're we're going to take a close look at, how, you know, we've talked about open source, the, the the security of it. I've talked about how difficult it is. For code to be perfect, and this is just a, this is this is so self-contained and th- just the right size that uh, I think our listeners are going to have a really fun time understanding. So, like uh, a real-world example of how something that is just so obviously correct can be actually incorrect.
0: Great! I can't wait. That's next week. Uh, We do this show normally Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC, Wednesdays, live.twit.tv. Our next show will be from the new Brickhouse Studios down the road. I don't know exactly what part of the studio we'll be using. And we'll be using video, by the way, Steve. I'm ready. Yeah, we'll get you ready on that. You should look fantastic in high-def. Uh, you can get this show in high def starting next week <laughs> after the fact at uh, twit.tv sn or if you listen to the audio we've got the audio but Steve's got 16 kilobit versions he's the only source for that so if you're bandwidth impaired or you've got caps or whatever 16 kilobit versions at grc.com along with transcripts only place you can get those and the full show notes too grc.com and don't forget to get spin right while you're there the world's best hard drive maintenance utility Steve, we will see you next week on the all-new Brickhouse Edition
1: of Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.